Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, it's all about bandits at the southern border who are making the most of the guerrilla war raging around the Transvaal, the Cape and the Free State. These motley laggards lurked close to towns and sometimes waylaid unfortunate men and women who passed by as they in turn were fleeing from the British or the Boers or both. The small town of Farismith is a classic desert town on the edge of the Karoo, close to where the Free State and Cape Colony border lay. This town had seen its fair share of skirmishes and battles during the first phase of the war, and its residents were now exhausted by the ongoing fighting swirling around the felt. Riding towards this small town was Danais Reitz and his new friend, Jakubus Bosman. Little did they know that also riding towards this part of the Free State was General Jan Smuts, who was to meet up with his initially small commando of 350 men and then launch a lightning raid into the Cape Colony. Meanwhile, Lord Kitchener was aware of Jan Smuts' commando plans and had mobilized another 15,000 men to march onto the semi-desert southern plains of the Free State in an attempt to surround this commando and once and for all deal a terminal blow to Boer's sentiment. But we'll start this week riding with Reitz and Bosman. They had begun their ride after bidding goodbye to their commando led by field coronet Boerter, who had turned back saying it was impossible to cross into the Cape now. And disappointingly, his two German friends, Hasser and Bolacek, had decided to turn back as well. The dirty dozen members had been reduced to the two idealist youngsters, Reitz, almost quixotic in his belief in some divine order that was calling him to the Cape, and Bosman equally motivated by which was to be a terrible miscalculation, as we'll hear in later podcasts. So after spending the night at a graveyard where British soldiers were killed in a shootout with Boers in 1848, the two awoke to a real problem. That night, the little Shetland pony that had wandered into the Boers' camp shortly before had taken off again, and this time Bosman's horse joined in on the expedition. Reitz and Bosman spent five hours on foot hunting for the horses. Finally, they located the two and rode them back to the graveyard to collect their saddles and other belongings. But these had disappeared. Bandits were busy, and they obviously had spied on the two, perhaps even tried stealing their horses. They had made a big mistake, however, as Reitz was by now more than an expert tracker. They had lost their bridles, saddles, cooking tins, blankets. This was a mighty blow. Still, the thieves were not clever enough to leave no trail, and our two boers began to track these criminals. It was a long ten miles before they spotted their prey. We saw two men seated beside a fire below a kopje, and stalking them on foot came close enough to cover them with our rifles before they could stir. They proved to be two boys from a nearby outpost, and they had all the missing gear lying near them. They said that they thought the things belonged to English scouts, a palpable lie, and we told them plainly what we thought of them. While the two boys were being verbally castigated, they coughed up a piece of vital information. It appeared that General Herzog was lying in the hills beyond the Reet River, which was around 40 miles away. Naturally, Reitz and his sidekick Bosman decided to join the famous Boer commander, and so it was that their path lay towards the deserted mining town of Jachesfontein, or Hunter's Spring, and then to the village of Forismith, where they rode into the dusty semi-desert bordered town at sunset. This place had also been abandoned by its original inhabitants, but we found it occupied by men 
who were little better than bandits, says a bitter rate. He's being too kind, as you'll hear. These people were bandits by anyone's definition. So this is what happened next. Reitz and Bosman rode up the main street in a scene reminiscent surely of many a Hollywood western. You can almost imagine the side-eyed looks they were given as they rode through the main street until they were forced to stop. A number of unkempt individuals rushed at us rifle in hand and ordered us to halt. They crowded around threateningly with shouts of Mark do it de verdomde spioneur or kill the accursed spies, although they must have known that we were nothing of the sort and only wanted a pretext to rob us, writes Rates. As is with the case of a mob that is beginning to run amok, a few hands reached up and tried to prize the men's belongings from the backs of their horses. Already greedy hands were clutching at our wallets and trying to pull us from our saddles. Things were looking grim for the young Rates and Bosman. Just then, two old, and what Rates calls famished-looking women, rushed out of a house and screamed for the mob to leave the two Boer soldiers alone. The group of bandits stepped back. They had so much influence over the rabble, says an impressed Rates, that they stood aside growlingly and allowed us to accompany our forbidding guardian angels to their home. The two women were daughters of a local wealthy farmer who was ruined and then killed in the war and now had taken refuge in an empty house in the village. They were poor, another two people whose lives had been shattered by this war. The riffraff who tried to steal from them appeared to have been failed soldiers ejected from the fighting commandos, and were now roaming the felt, plundering where they could. This story reminds me of tales about the American Civil War, when, as it began to wind down, there were well-armed and bitter men roaming the plains of the United States, seeking revenge for their damaged lives and predating on the civilians. There was good news for Reitz, however. He now knew where General Herzog had moved. It was further west, so they rode out of this godforsaken town the next morning. But nothing was going to improve when it came to bandits. Everyone in this area, it appears, was on the take. After riding for two days, Reitz and Bosman found a cattle post near a river. The old man and his two sons who were guarding the herd said they were looking after the meat supply of General Herzog's men only ten miles upstream. But it was too late to continue their trip, so they turned in for the night. We spent the night with our hosts, an unsavory trio, Rates explains. We did not belie their looks, for we found next morning that our saddlebags had been rifled. Rates lined up the three and then shot one of the men in the arm. The thieves promptly returned the knives, tinderboxes and other property. For Eastmouth was turning out to be the home of bandits and robbers, who'd appear to have lost all honour. By midday we came on General Herzog's force, camped on the banks of a river at a place called Bethel. Rates finally has joined another group of well-armed and organised burghers. There were 300 men in this commando. I knew General Herzog from the old days, says the man barely in his twenties. A thin, high-cheeked man with angry eyes, though his speech was pleasant, and I saw that his men held him in great respect. The general had been a judge of the Supreme Court in Bloemfontein before the war, and was now in command of all Boer forces in the southwestern districts of the Free State. But these men were not interested in returning to the Cape, where they had spent many months harrying the British, but also facing significant pressure from the columns that were marching through the landscape. 
For 10 days, Reitz tried to convince some to join him and Bosman in their quest to re-enter the Cape, and for 10 days they were rejected. They said that once was enough, and every time we broached the subject, we were met with emphatic refusals and with tales of privations and losses which they had sustained during the previous expeditions. That didn't stop the commander from causing trouble locally, however. An English column had crossed to their side of the river one night on the way to nearby Kimberley, and there was an exchange of fire for two days until the English retreated and returned over the Riet River Railway Bridge, which for some reason the Boers had failed to destroy. It was during this clash that Raitz survived another encounter with an Englishman at point-blank range. On the afternoon of the second day, while two of us were riding down to a dam to water our horses, an English trooper came galloping towards us around a copy. He was plucky enough, for when he realised his mistake, he fired from the saddle so close that before he could do so again, I was alongside with my rifle in his ribs. They took this man's boots and horse, rifle and ammunition, and then made him walk back to his column barefoot. I did not envy him, says Reitz, as they were travelling through rocky terrain. Fate was again to play its hand here, because as the English withdrew, ten more Boers arrived, and announced they were on their way to the Cape Colony. It was to be the dirty dozen once more, with the ten joined by Reitz and Bosman. They, of course, were part of the small groups of men that General Jan Smuts had sent south, and were supposed to meet up at some point for their invasion of the Cape. From that moment onwards, these twelve would experience some of the chaos of warfare together, but also the horror of capture and execution. I was to be intimately associated with this little band. So many of them died tragically, he writes. The leader was Jack Boreas, a short, thick-set man of 28 from Potchefstroom. Next was Benjamin Kutsir from Pretoria, who was reckless and brave and had a reputation that stretched back to the start of the war when he fought in Natal against General Buller. There were Nicolas Swart and Cornelius Fermat, who were sons of wealthy Transvaal farmers. Fermat had an incredible story himself. He was wounded and captured by the British six months before, but had jumped from a train in the mountains near Cape Town en route to Salon and had made his way back to the Transvaal. Percy Windle and Edgar Dunker both from Johannesburg. Another example of the complexities of this war. There was also Fritz Balloch, an Austrian who had been living in Pretoria when hostilities broke out and had fought for the Boers since October 1899. There was Jan van Sale, who travelled from Holland to fight with the Boers, and a youngster called Piet de Reit from Potchestrum who made up the band of brothers from various countries. This group said they'd call themselves the Rake Section, the rich section, but Dunker, the Englishman, preferred they were known as the Dandy Fifth. It was ironic because they were all dressed in tatters. But this was to be a bitter war for the group. Four would meet their death through execution. Six would be wounded or captured by the end of their Cape venture. A result that fully justified the many warnings which we had received against entering the Cape Colony, writes, writes ominously. Far away in his multi-flagged office in Cape Town, Lord Kitchener was fuming. The war office had sent their famous telegram, secret at the time of course, that had told him in no uncertain terms that the British government wanted the fighting over by the end of South Africa's winter. It was too expensive to continue. Jan Smuts's plan to invade the Cape was known by the British and Kitchener reminded the war cabinet that if they cut the number of troops as planned, Smuts could cause them a major headache in the south. I plan to clear the Cape, said Kitchener. Then we'll look at trimming numbers.
General Kritzinger of the Boers was still busy in the southeast of the Cape, roaming the small Karoo just north of the strategic harbour city of Port Elizabeth and the other of East London. For seven months he had evaded capture and Kitchener used this in his telegram back to London, warning that any reduction in force would be a blunder. In what was a classic tussle between military hardliners and political leaders, Kitchener began to outline what was a truly extreme solution. Why not, he said, gather up all the Boers, around 250,000 at this stage, and put them on ships and send them to some other place? His other possible solution was to force all the women and children in concentration camps onto ships and then send these to join the imprisoned menfolk in Ceylon, the West Indies, St. Helena, India, and other British colonial prison of war camps. When that was rejected out of hand by the British government, Kitchener suggested that all Boer property be seized and sold to pay for the concentration camp costs. This, of course, is exactly what the Nazis did during the Holocaust. Old ideas keep drifting back in a more modern era. As soon as Cape Governor Alfred Milner was back on board the ship heading from England to Cape Town, Kitchener fired off another set of telegrams. He proposed a new carrot-and-stick approach that was mainly stick, not much carrot. Fairly mild sentences of one year for Cape rebels who gave up. Otherwise, it was execution upon capture. He was quite lenient about Transvaal and Free State Boer fighters, but only to a point, saying they should surrender and then keep their property but not the leadership who should be exiled permanently in the manner of Napoleon on St. Helena. Then, at this time in 1901, an event took place which upset the British government and again would echo down the ages when it comes to the ugliness of the Second World War, for example, and the treatment of civilians. Cavalry Commander General French had captured some Cape rebels at Dutrecht and then he'd forced the town citizens to watch their execution. They were relatives at close hand. A very public display of British power, but one which the government was against and said so. Kitchener had allowed French to go ahead with his cruel plan. Then Kitchener rounded on Broderick, the war secretary, saying, Let me take a strong line and I'll finish the war quickly. He was quietly reminded that severity had not proved itself a success so far. There was bitter wrangling, as Thomas Packenham says in his book on the Boer War. Back in England... Emily Hobhouse was on her lecture tour, outlining just how horrible conditions in the concentration camps were. The opposition liberals and young Labour Party were mobilising against the war, and the stories about the treatment of women and children, patchy as they were, while Kitchener had tried to impose a strict censorship, they began to alarm the general public. I outlined how the Fawcett Commission, made up of women who were supposed to visit the concentration camps, was on the move. It was the start of August, when this commission boarded their train to begin a probe of the camps where thousands were dying now. The biggest problem with the commission was it was made up of specialists who were distinctly anti-Boer. There was no independent voice on this commission and its work was to suffer because of their bias, as we'll see. But the members still had two months of investigating before they'd present any findings, so what happens to this process is for another time. We're at an important point in this war. Jan Smuts is riding south, the small bands of Boers moving inexorably towards the Cape border, the British lashing out and law and order starting to collapse. The black clans living alongside the Boers and British were not unaware of this, and they began to make their move to reclaim land lost during the colonial expansion. This would resonate once more in a land wracked by warfare, but that's for the future. It's time to call a halt. 
Please rate the podcast on iTunes and send a message on Twitter to me at Des Latham or an email through our website abwarpodcast.com. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar my sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon